and it has been a passion and the more you learn the more you want you know it's it's a it's a, it's kind of addicting you know but the reason why it's addicting is because you're seeing change you're seeing the land respond quite frankly it's responding alarmingly quick i mean you would think you know we've been degrading soil for 140 years but yet how fast mother nature responds to you know a kind gesture or a positive input Welcome to the 301st installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, community food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. It's hard to overstate the role tile drainage has played in producing row crops in the American Midwest. According to the latest Census of Agriculture, around 56 million acres of U.S. farmland is tiled, which represents 14% of all the country's cropland. That figure goes up every year, and over half of Iowa's farmland is now artificially drained. In Minnesota, over a third is. With its ability to pull excessive moisture off farm fields in a short amount of time, this rural version of a storm sewer system has made countless low-lying acres tillable. Managing excessive water is particularly critical during the spring when farmers are scrambling to plant their crops in dry, warm soil and get them off to a good start. With climate change ushering in increasingly intense precipitation events, being able to keep water from swamping or washing out our crop fields is more important than ever. But a few years ago, Tom Finnegan realized there was a limit to what all that underground engineering can accomplish. Tom farms some 500 acres with his wife, Kim, in the Cedar River watershed near Austin in southern Minnesota. Managing water is a major problem on the corn and soybean ground they farm. As a result, they haven't been shy about investing in the installation of drainage systems. But a few years ago, when the tiling company came back to them with a recommendation to install even more intense and expensive tiling infrastructure, the Finnegans decided to take a more biologically-based approach. Namely, they began to rely more heavily on the ability of cover crops to build the kind of soil aggregate structure that allows fields to soak up and store moisture. By planting diverse cocktail mixes that contain as many as 12 species, the Finnegans are utilizing the ground cover and rooting systems these plants provide to build resiliency and productivity on their farm. The result is not only less swamp land and lower erosion rates, but fewer weeds. On top of that, the Finnegans have been able to make their cover crops a source of revenue by grazing their direct marketed beef herd on the plants. Building soil health profitably is exciting for the family, given that stewardship is a high priority for them. When they initially bought the farm, the Finnegans rented it out, but they eventually became frustrated with how the soil was being treated by the renters and began farming it themselves. Tom has a full-time town job, but over the past several years, he's found time to set up a regenerative system that, besides cover cropping, relies on no-till and managed rotational grazing. Tom recently gave a presentation during an LSP soil health workshop. Afterwards, I chatted with him about an eye-opening moment he had when he realized the role livestock can play in building soil health. We also talked about when he realized good soil tilth trumps tiling and the important role networking with other farmers plays when experimenting with innovative management systems. Don't really come from a crop background. Came from three generations of a livestock producers, and uh, so basically, cattle and forage was what my exposure was at from my youth to midlife, if you want to say. Had the opportunity to buy a farm uh, close to my parents, and the whole goal there was to expand our cattle operation. And after a couple of years of renting out the land and being basically disgusted with 
the amount of erosion and wind erosion, soil erosion, the degradation of the soil. We took our farms back and uh, started our journey with soil health. And the, the catalyst for that was we were direct selling our beef and we wanted to offer people in good faith the best uh, meat that we could produce. So talk a little bit about, you ha- said you kind of had an aha moment with, you were looking at, I think, cover crops, and you realized the role that livestock, that it's one thing to do the cover crops, you, you really were committed to that, you felt like it was a better treatment of the land and the soil, but you had a real aha moment with where, uh, involving your cattle, I think, if you could just Talk about that a little bit. I think that was a really key piece. So initially, and in coming from experience of just how we'd done it years prior, we yarded the cattle in the during the winter time, and uh, then the calving uh, the calving was in a similar location. We had a high rate of uh, infection or sickness in the calves, and mindfully so because you know the the concentration of manure and and just close proximity. So visiting with another producer, they were calving on their row crop land. And since we'd already planted the covers, it, it just made perfect sense to move the cattle out on clean land with the covers. From that day forward, we have yet, knock on wood, to have a sick calf. And it's a lot easier to have a healthy animal stay healthy and make it through their journey versus one that got sick at youth and, and fights that throughout their lifetime. Cover crops are a little bit like uh, apple pie or whatever, but I think they're a great idea, but not everybody has adapted them. They, they, they think the concept is good, but there's excuses of why they don't do it. And one of them is, well, it's an added expense to the farm. But you, I think you made a really good point about how livestock can really make it into a, a good revenue stream. Oh, yeah. Well, in our area, it's very, very hard to expand a livestock operation because of the limited ability of pasture land. The only way for our family to grow our ever-growing uh, direct sales business was to find more land. And since we already owned the tillable land, uh, the cover crop was just an easy segue to uh, expand our cattle operation. And, and what it's really done is made the whole farm more profitable and made everybody benefits, the cattle benefit and the land. is. I'm a firm believer that having cattle on, on land will fast track your your journey back to healthy soil by years. So you, right now you're doing no-till, is that correct? And, and cover crops? Yep. And is it rotational grazing? You bet. Yep. In fact, we have invested over, and, and some of this is through the Clean Water Act, we were eligible for a grant. And so we've utilized that for several years now, but all of our farms are now perimeter fenced. Hmm. So as we, depending on which crop we have at what time of the year, we have the ability to graze the cattle, and it's our goal to have the cattle feeding themselves. One of the things you talked about was you really struggle with managing water, and you're in the Red Cedar watershed, you're on low-lying land. So you have invested a lot in tiling, and you kind of took it as far as you could, and you realize there's a point where kind of building that soil health is really how I'm really going to get this taking care of, of this soil management issue in the long term. So, yeah, we the farm was in need of being retiled when we first bought it. So over five years, we tiled the entire farm out to a six-figure expense, and then we still were struggling with ponding in a couple of different spots. Well, the solution was go back to the tile company and then ask them, well, of course, naturally, they want to put, they want to go in and do splits and then break it down to 30s or 20-foots. And, you know, tens of twenties of thousands of dollars or more well that really wasn't feasible 
but we were starting to see we had already started doing cover crops at that point and we were starting to see a slow reduction in the ponding so after going through meetings researching it on the internet talking to NRCS people, people like Tom Cotter, who was very well invested and had a lot of time ahead of me, we then decided to put in um, like 12-way blends, and they went season long on those fields. And we specifically went after taproot-type cover crops, not so much the upper-level fibrous roots, but we call them drillers. And they went down, and within two years, the, the, the ponding issue was gone. And, and since then, we haven't, we haven't had that. So I think the structure of the soil has changed dramatically as far as infiltration of water. Yeah, you had a pretty amazing photo, I think, where you were showing just the real difference in, in the water ability of it to manage that water. Yeah, and, and not only managing the water, but the weed pressure is no longer there mm, yeah. because, you know, only the bad things want to grow, you know, in, the, in those locations. So a huge improvement. And yeah. we're not having to spend all the money on on extra tile. Yeah, it just really shows that there's a certain, just a certain point you can do with mechanical changes and all that, but at one point you have to really turn to that biology. You bet, you bet, and I think it's only going to keep getting better. You know, we're, we're even seeing top hills where there was basically no uh, quality soil left on the tops of our hills. We're not, we're now starting to see where it, we're growing a plant again there, which is just remarkable. So you can build topsoil in organic matter. So how long have you been kind of doing all of this stuff? 12 years. 12 years. So what else have you have you seen in that time kind of uh, that's really showing you you're on the right track? One of the biggest indicators I thought would be worms. Before, they were almost non-existent. The porosity of the soil has changed dramatically as well. Since we've spent a lot of time putting fencing in, we've done a lot of digging, post hole digging, and putting lots, hundreds and hundreds of posts in. And initially, when we were doing it, the ground was hard as a brick. It's amazing now. Uh, how the soil has changed. It's mellowed, I guess would be the right word to use. And our goal is to help us, or help everyone out. And I have a next door neighbor that he and I went to school together and they've been, they're a big dairy outfit, heavy, heavy conventional farming. And, and his dad is um, an older gentleman that it kind of controls all decisions. And of course, I think John and I, the son that's my age, had had numerous conversations and you know sit at the fence line or talk in the field and drive and and uh it was funny here after about four years in a row on my father's farm which is separated by a gravel road between our their farm and my father's farm we rolled into a nice beautiful green cereal rye field and and my boys dropped the planter in and set the set the guidance up and they took off while i was sitting in the pickup with the you know with the seed and he he was across the field working his farm for I think it was at least the third time that spring. And he got out of his tractor and he walked over and he goes, you know, I'm getting pretty damn sick and tired of walking <laughs> over here and watching you guys roll in here and drop your planter and you take off. And he goes, what the heck? And so it opened the door to a, to a, a lengthy conversation, which my goal, of course, is to share what I've been fortunate enough to learn from like-minded people and through meetings like this. And uh, by God, if last fall you didn't plant some cereal rye in a 20, 30 acre strip. And, and then, so once I saw that he did it, I went and saw, I went to see him and, uh, and I told him, I said, you know, what is your purpose for it? And he was going to use it for dairy feed. And so I kind of told him about how my first experience, I let it go full term, which wasn't ideal. I mean, you got a big tonnage number, but there was a high lignant value in the crop, which then the cows sorted. So I shared some of my experience with him and by God, it wasn't shortly after that, they went out and harvested it and uh, he was able to get two crops off it. So not only did I influence the fact that he actually tried it, I also showed him or taught him of one thing that I did that I wish I would have done differently. And, and uh, now they're in their second year and uh, they seem very happy with it. Well, that's, I mean, that's what it's all about is you can tell people and even get them to go to a workshop maybe, but 
boy, when they see it on their neighbor's farm on the same soils, same oh, weather. Right across the road. Yeah, and you, like you said, they're getting the same amount of precipitation you're getting. Yeah. That's, there's nothing better. You just, you just can't buy that kind of influence. No, and, it, and it's, I think, as the younger people come up, there'll be a higher acceptance rate of, of these policies because they know that we need to make a we need to make a change in the right direction and this is definitely one of them kind of sounds like you got a little bit started back into you're working full-time off the farm but you kind of got started back into this just a little bit because you weren't you really were did care about stewardship of that land and and it was you were a little frustrated with how your renters were farming that land and some some people would find another renter but you thought well i'll just take the bull by the horns and, and go out there and try to do some of these practices that i'd like to see out there oh very much so yeah we went there to have a discussion and all i was really trying to facilitate that initial or that last meeting we had was to eliminate anhydrous and to uh, get away from fall tillage so that we could extend the cattle as it turned out they were uh, they were offended because me being a non-farmer in their eyes, they felt that I was, uh, you know, not finding value or credit in their system. And me being kind of up for a challenge, I guess, in most things in life, I like to be challenged. He presented the statement to me that he goes, well, if you know so much, why don't you do it yourself? And uh, I said, well, you know what? I sure, I think I can. I've learned how to do a lot of things in my life, and I can learn how to do this. So he actually did me the biggest favor that anybody has probably done in my farming career by challenging me. And, and uh, the kind of the interesting thing was is shortly after that, they were asking me questions at the elevator one time when we took a load of feed in or a load of us grain in, and I and I felt that was rather was rather uh, vindicating. What were your, some of the practices you were oh, putting you on? Bet. Yeah, yeah, they had. It was only two years after that that they sold they sold their anhydrous toolbar, and they went back to a liquid form of nitrogen. You know, which everyone knows, anhydrous kills all the microbes that it comes in contact with. So we're trying to build soil, not tear it down. Just kind of tying in with that a little bit, I think a point that really came out today with the from the other speakers as well. We had. You know, 65 to 70 people here in this Belchester Community Center. It just really, and then we broke up into smaller groups to talk about kind of areas of cover cropping, no-till, grazing, that kind of thing. But really struck me how important these networks are because you started out, you admitted you didn't know a whole lot. You just knew what kind of farming you'd like to see there. And so these networks must be just so key for folks like you. There is no doubt that we wouldn't be anywhere where we are if it wasn't for well, like organizations like today, LSP put this on, brought these people together. My wife says I have a farm addiction because I look on YouTube and, you know, I just watch Gabe Brown or watch, you know, other people. And it has been a passion. And the more you learn, the more you want. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of addicting, you know. But the reason why it's addicting is because you're seeing change. You're seeing the land respond. Quite frankly, it's responding alarmingly quick. I mean, you would think, you know, we've been degrading the soil for 140 years, but yet how fast Mother Nature responds to, you know, a kind gesture or a positive input. Any small amount of change just has such a huge effect and how really remarkable how everything is all interconnected. information on building soil health profitably is available on the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode number 301 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. 
By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 